let's pray together. First, let's bow and pray. Father, as we come to your word, we pray it would speak to our hearts and our minds and our souls, our consciences, that it would subdue us and humble us and sanctify us, that it would achieve all the purposes that you have for it, that we'd be given ears to hear spiritually and inwardly, and that we might leave this place knowing more of Christ and rejoicing in him, walking humbly before you and before others, and knowing him who is in the form of God, who emptied himself, taking the form of a slave even, dying the worst of deaths, that he might win the people for himself. Grant us as we bow the knee to him that we might be members of that kingdom, of that family, which is forever. And we pray in his name. Amen. Well, we'll be looking at verses 5 through to 11 of Philippians 2. Uh, and Paul has been urging on the Philippians uh, as a spirit of unity, which is brought about through a spirit of, of lowliness, of humility. Uh, why be humble? Uh, in, in recent years, last decades, uh, the idea of humility has gone right out, hasn't it? It's, so if you're going for a job, you tell them how wonderful you are and they can't possibly yeah, survive as a company or whatever it is without you. you you exalt yourself. It's, it's, a, it's a rather unusual approach. Uh, it wasn't around decades ago, but it certainly is around now. Uh, so, some of you might not know this fellow, but uh, Anthony Mundine used to play rugby league, and he played a particularly bad game one, one time. And uh, he played for St George, and they lost about 60 nil or something. And he was interviewed after it, and he said, uh, well, I don't think he said anything. I think his ghostwriter said it. Uh, he said, adversity is the breakfast of champions. You know, so if you lose 60 nil, it's a good thing. Um, and then he quoted Albert Einstein, uh, great spirits have always encountered violent opposition from mediocre minds. Uh, and so uh, if you know Anthony Mundine, he links himself there with Albert Einstein, and that link probably not obvious to you, but it was obvious to Anthony Mundine. Uh, and it's a bit crass, I would have thought, uh, a bit embarrassing, but... He didn't seem to be embarrassed by it. Now, usually we're not quite as open as that, a bit more subtle about it, but uh, humility is not something that's natural to us. Pride is the problem. Have a look at Christ here. Christ goes from glory to ignominy and then back to glory. That's the pattern we see here in these verses. And the first thing we see here. It's what should be most surprising. It's done in the context of uh, uh, Paul promoting a humble attitude to his readers, to those at Philippi, uh, which is a Greek city up in the northern part, Macedonia. Uh, so look at verse 5. He, he, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or... Yeah, let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. Not a lot of difference in meaning. So the scholars want to argue about how to translate it exactly. But we, we just sang Kate Wilkinson's hymn, May the mind of Christ my Saviour live in me from day to day. <coughs> and that's what Paul's saying there. 
and the emphasis there is uh, not on holiness, it could be, that makes perfect sense, or uh, all the other great attributes of Christ, his graciousness and so on, but his loneliness, his humility of heart. Uh, and so this is telling us, as he told the Philippians, to have the same mind that Christ has, or is telling us to, to be of a lowly mind, because that, that is the mind that shows that we're in Christ Jesus. So either way, the idea is to be humble and self-sacrificing. And that's what he's talked about in the previous two verses. So verses three and four. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, that each of you look at not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And then he says, have this mind of humility. The way up in, in the Christian faith is to go down. Uh, the model is Christ. And startlingly, the model that he sets before us here is the incarnation. A lot of people sing songs like this and carols like this. And uh, I didn't watch it last night. Uh, I can hardly bring myself to it. Carols into the main. Um, <clears throat> but some years ago, uh, John Lennon's Imagine was played two years in a row because it sounds like a carol. It's the very opposite of a carol. It's attacking the uh, idea of God uh, and any sort of power that God has over his world and, and saying the way ahead, the way of peace is, is to get rid of God. Well, that hasn't worked. But they sang this in a carol, well, it's supposed to be a carol service, uh, two years in a row. It was back in the night, late 1980s. Uh, it was hard to watch then. It's, it's even harder to watch now. But the incarnation is what it's meant to be about. The word became flesh and dwell among us. That's what it's about. That's the, what the Advent season is supposed to proclaim. Uh, we are to imitate that. And what's that mean? We, we cannot imitate the incarnation. We are flesh and blood. We've only ever been flesh and blood. Christ became man. The word became flesh. We didn't become humans. We started out as humans and we're never anything else. But Christ is the ultimate model of humble, self-sacrificing and self-giving spirit. So we are to imitate the spirit of the incarnation. What brought the Son of God to earth? Why did he come? A lot of answers. He came to save his people. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. Uh, he says that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, but what drives him to do that? And here's one answer in Philippians 2. It's his humility of spirit. Uh, if you go back to uh, 2 Corinthians... And we find another example of this. Imitate the spirit of the incarnation. We can't imitate the, the incarnation, but imitate the spirit of it. So 2 Corinthians chapter 9, 
sorry, chapter 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, now it means he was rich in glory, he was rich in heaven, he possessed everything, he's the creator of everything, it's all his. He doesn't make it his, it already is his. So though uh, he was rich in glory, yet for your sake he became poor. He dwelt on earth as a poor man. He said the foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. That's how he lived. So he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Now why does Paul write that? It's in the context of the collection. He's taking a collection for uh, Jewish churches, there's a famine, and these are Gentile churches that will be supporting these Jewish churches in their time of need. Why do that? And he says, well, look at Christ, look at what he did. He was rich in glory, he became poor for your sake, that you might be rich, you know, that you might go to glory. Therefore be generous. That's his argument. If he was self-giving, you be self-giving. Uh, when Christ bore our reproaches, he did this by taking them on himself. So I'm going to read from Romans 15. It's another example. Uh, the first three verses of Romans 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Now, why do we have such an obligation? Well, let each of you please his neighbour for his good to build him up, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That's the way Christ lived. And so we are to imitate the one whom, in one sense, we cannot imitate. Do we? I mean, if, if the message is, uh, look, you be good as Jesus is good, and that, then God will judge you, that would not be good news. That would be the worst news you could ever hear, because we all fall short. So if the gospel is imitate Jesus... Well, then there's no hope. But the New Testament does tell us in a few places to imitate Jesus. And Philippians 2 is telling us to imitate the humility of the Son of God. Not that that will get us to glory, but we will know about how through Jesus we can get to glory. There's a big difference. It's not that we do what he did and therefore God is pleased with us because he's pleased with him, it's because we're found in him and therefore saved. We receive salvation from him. He's the model of self-giving humility. There's a number of other passages. Yeah, John 13, what's he do? Uh, the night before the crucifixion, he washes his disciples' feet. And then what does he tell them? He says, well, I've done that to you, you do that to others. You go around washing people's feet and you go to heaven. That's not what he's saying. But I, who am your Lord and your teacher, I stoop down to this level. You have that same spirit. That's what he's saying. And that's what Paul's saying here 
in Philippians 2. So what we go on to look at now, that's the context. It's very surprising. We cannot imitate the incarnation, that makes no sense, but we are to imitate the spirit of the incarnation, that the humility of heart that brought the Son of God from heaven to earth. So that, that's our first point. That's, that's, the, that's the context. Now, the, the second thing that we see here is that what we, what we call the, the humiliation of Christ, the third point will be the exaltation of Christ. So just so you know where we're heading. But the humiliation of Christ is there in verses uh, 6 through to 8. And he says, Christ is in the form of God. So verse 6, who, he's referring to Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So that's the the humiliation of Christ, the humiliation of the Son of God. Uh, Some people say that's an early Christian hymn and Paul's drawn on it and and says what he says here, but I'll, I'll leave that with you. Equality with God. Christ possessed equality with God. He was in the form of God, possessed equality with God, uh, but he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. If, if you're raised in the King James Version, it didn't count it as robbery, which uh, you, you can translate it that way, but I don't, it's, it makes it very clunky. You have to sit and think for a while before you can work out what Paul would mean if that's the translation. I think rather it means that Christ possesses everything that God does. He dwelt in heaven and there was nothing missing. Whatever God possesses, the Father possesses, the Son possesses and the Spirit possesses. Christ has only appeared in human form in the last 2,000 years or so. BC, Christ was in the form of God. Spirit, in the form of God, the Holy Spirit, God the Father is Spirit, God is Spirit, the Son of God is Spirit. Then he takes on humanity, he takes on a body, he takes on human form, he more than that, he's, he's not just uh, divinity inhabiting a human body, that's wrong, he takes on a, another nature. There's divine nature and a human nature. And he empties himself to do that. But where did he come from? He came from being in the form of God. In the high priestly prayer, remember in in John 17, on the uh, Thursday night before the crucifixion, Jesus prays, uh, he prays to his father, of course, but the apostles, or 11 of them, Judas had had left, the, the, the apostles are there listening to him and they overhear this prayer. It's verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He's saying, I I know where I've come from. 
and I know where I'm going back to. Uh, glorify me with this glory that I had when I pre-existed with you before the incarnation. In fact, before Genesis 1 verse 1. Before there was a world, before there was a universe, there was God, the triune God. But this is the, the humiliation of Christ. He, he, he takes on the form, a, a lot, it's, it's doulos, it's a servant, but it's, it's really a slave. He takes on the form of a slave and dies on a cross. So he did not count equality with God, something to be grasped. Uh, if you've got the robbery translation that, or interpretation uh, of the King James Version, that would be meaning that he did not uh, consider robbing God of anything in being equal with God. I think that's a sort of clunky way around, isn't it? Uh, he's, he's saying he had equality with God, but he didn't hold on to that. And he didn't exploit that. So this is the humility of God. There's no other religion that will teach you this. This is unique. Christ makes Christianity unique. He empties himself. And he did not hold on to equality with God as something that must not slip from his grasp. He did not do that. Uh, Christ was in the form of God, but he did not use that to his own advantage. He used that to the advantage of people who didn't deserve it. He did not exploit it. He made himself nothing. Literally, he nothinged himself. And he took the form of a servant or a slave, born in the likeness of men. Now, I hope you haven't heard this view, this theory, so uh, always careful when you explain a heresy. Because yeah, if you make it sound too good, you do a lot of damage. But I'll explain this because sometimes you do hear it, and I think it's unwitting. But uh, there was an Anglican bishop, the Bishop of Oxford, uh, about nine, died about 1930. His name was Charles Gore, and he came up with this view that on Philippians 2, he says, Christ was in the form of God and he emptied himself, he set aside his deity and he became a man. So while he was walking around here on the earth, he is a man. And, you know, he eats and he drinks and he gets tired and so on and, and he suffers. It's true man. But he, he's left his divinity behind and he's simply man on earth and then at the resurrection, he gets his divinity back again, goes to heaven. Now, you know why he said that? He said that because he didn't believe the Bible. And some, some people mistook him as trying to understand Philippians 2. He's trying to undermine Philippians 2. And the reason is because he said, Jesus believed that the Old Testament was from, the word, from God, was the word of God. So that's obviously wrong, he said. Now remember, this is heresy, so don't write this down. As, you know, this is what Barnes is teaching. No, this, is what, this is what Barnes is warning. <laughs> so he, he, he believed that the Bible was wrong. He's an Anglican bishop, Oxford, 
Well, where else? Yeah. And, and he says, uh, Jesus gets it wrong because he left his deity behind. So when he was walking around on earth, he didn't have any more advantages uh, than we do. So whatever you like to, to reject, you should reject. Now, he had specifically in mind Jesus' view of the Bible. Yeah, the scriptures cannot be broken, those sort of passages. Jesus taught that about the Old Testament. He came to fulfil the Old Testament. He didn't come to destroy it. Uh, and, and Gore says, no, that's wrong. And, and Gore knows better. <laughs> and so he tries to come up... It's called the kenotic theory. Kenosis means empty. Uh, and he emptied himself of his deity. In other words, you've got no reason to listen to Jesus at all because everything he said on earth could have been wrong because it's just human. That's what he said. Now, that's totally wrong. That's, that is utterly wrong. That's not what Paul's saying here. Why did Jesus empty himself? Or we shouldn't say it. Like, Jesus is the name of the man. Yeah. What did the Son of God empty himself of? Well, he emptied himself of the fullness of glory, didn't he? So when he walked around on earth, uh, it wasn't like you know, Isaiah 6 or, or Revelation 5, you know, a vision into heaven and uh, you know, the angels bowing down and worship him and there's a halo around his head and it's obvious that this man is more than man. It's, it's not that. He had no form or comeliness that we should desire him. He just looked very ordinary. But he wasn't very ordinary at all. But he emptied himself of the things that uh, would show that he has come from heaven. He does not empty himself of his deity. Charles Wesley got that right. The Hark the Herald Angels sing, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Veiled in flesh. You had to see it. You had to listen. You had to... Yet of discerning ears, the Holy Spirit had to be at work. There's a veiling there. He doesn't leave his deity behind, he veils it. And we are meant to see in the way he speaks, and the way he forgives sins, the way he claims that uh, he will judge the world, and the way that the kingdom of God is the kingdom of Christ, the judgment of God is the judgment of Christ, all those things point that this is the one who's come as human and divine. So he lays aside not his deity, he lays aside his heavenly glory. He emptied himself, verse 7. He humbled himself, verse 8. He made himself nothing. The world is full of social climbers. They're everywhere. Ambition to walk the red carpet, to win the award, to become a legend of some description. And most of it, well, all of it, comes from then. What's, it, what's the point of it? Not so Christ. Mild he lays his glory by. So he adds humanity to his deity. If the emperor in Rome decided that he'd become a street sweeper, that would be extraordinary. But that's 
not what the Son of God does. He, he descends from a far higher place. He's equal with God. He's in the form of God. And he comes to a far lower place. A slave who even dies on a cross. C.S. Lewis says, it's something like if a human being became a crab or a slug. That's just an illustration. It's, it doesn't quite work, does it? Um, but it'll give us some idea. So, glory to God in the highest. And Chesterton says, well, glory to God in the lowest. They're both true. You can turn it on its head. And it's true. And it doesn't end there. He humbles himself and he dies death on a cross. Now, you've read descriptions of crucifixions. They're, they're awful. You know, Cicero, the greatest orator, a senator in the, in the Roman Senate, and he's got a long description of a crucifixion, and, and he says, yeah, this is the worst possible death. We don't talk about this at dinner parties. It's, it's the last subject we raise. And he's got this long discourse on, on just how terrible a crucifixion is. Uh, if you want to inflict the maximum of pain, crucifixion was the way to do it. And the one who came to die on a cross came deliberately to die on a cross. You cannot crucify God. God becomes man in order to be crucified, to die the lowest, the most painful of deaths. He takes on the lowest status, slave, and he dies the worst of deaths. Why? Adam. What did Adam do? Genesis 3 verse 5. God knows uh, that when you eat of it, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. That's the temptation to, uh, to Adam. Eat this, disobey God, and you'll be like God. And of course, what he finds is he disobeys God. He's not like God at all, but death is brought into the world. We all sin, we all die. We do different sins, and we don't know when we're going to die, but we all will. And Adam has brought that into the world. Christ reverses Adam, doesn't he? he? His death is not a result of his disobedience, but his obedience. He's obedient unto death, and it doesn't usher in death, it ushers in life. He's the second Adam that's reversed it, and more than reversed it. He, uh, he, Adam grasped a status that was not his, Jesus left it. Well, sorry, the Son of God left a status that was his. Adam had no right to try to usurp the place of God. Christ had every right because he's equal with God. He didn't have to usurp it. That's, that's where he came from. And he renounced that right. He emptied himself. He came down to earth from heaven who is God and Lord 
of all. That's what we sing. I hope we sing with meaning, understanding what's being said. Or we fell to, to earth in death. He tried to be Lord of all. Yeah, that's Adam. So that's the uh, humiliation of the Son of God. That leads us then to the third part here, where we have Christ as the exalted Lord. So verses 9 to 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should, should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. For us, the story is disobedience leads to death. For Christ, it's his obedience leads to life. The one who is in the form of God takes on the form of a slave in order to die on a cross that the work of Adam would be undone. But it doesn't finish there because here he is exalted. Uh, in verse 9, God has exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Uh, he doesn't actually say God exalted Christ. He actually says God super exalted him or hyper exalted him. That's, that's what he said. He, he, he was fond of those sort of expressions, Paul, and he uses one of them there. Now, he doesn't specifically mention the resurrection, but clearly the resurrection is in mind. Christ has risen from the dead, and then he's, he's super exalted. He's raised to the right hand of the Father. Uh, a couple of the cross-references. <coughs> uh, Ephesians 4, verse 10, says, He's ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now, you don't say that about other prophets, do you? You don't say that about Jeremiah or Isaiah or the Apostle Paul, but that's what is said about Christ. Uh, and Hebrews 7, verse 26, he is exalted above the heavens. Again, you don't say that about one who is an ordinary man. So Christ is now reigning from the highest of heavens, and he who reached the lowest depths in, the, in his death on the cross now reigns from the highest of heights. And the word Jesus means he saves. But he has the name which is above every other name. Now, a couple of people said that, well, that is Jesus. I don't think so. He's saying, this is Yahweh. This is Lord. Uh, this is the, the, the name of God. I am who I am. This is the one who is given the name which is above every other name. Uh, Isaiah 42, verse 8 says... I am the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, uh, and that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And, and Christ doesn't see himself as, as uh, uh, you know, sharing that glory with the Father so much, but making that glory known. Uh, and so this is the glory that is given to Christ, and all creation will recognise him as Lord. Now, there's plenty of people around Des Moines who, who aren't thinking like this at all. There's plenty of people around Reesby who don't think like this. You know, go up and down the, the streets and uh, uh, some of them are just bewildered, you know. 
I don't think about these things. I think about you know, home and away and stuff like that. Uh, uh, you know, bring on the cricket or whatever. Uh, that's what they. That's how they think. And there are others who say, no, this is, you know, they think a bit more about it, perhaps. This is blasphemy. This is, or, or this is mythology. <laughs> or this is, this is just a legend that's been made up. Uh, and that's their view of it. But that won't be their view at the end. All creation will recognise Jesus as Lord. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. There won't be anybody arguing. There won't be a court case. I want to appeal to a higher court. There is no higher court. This is the judgment. Uh, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did you get the first reading? Isaiah 43? Some of you might know that Isaiah 43... Uh, sorry, Isaiah 45, verse 23. Isaiah 45, verse 22, you, you all know the conversion of Charles Spurgeon, don't you? Ah, go and read it if you haven't read it. It's the next verse that is quoted here. Uh, Every knee will bow to God and swear allegiance to God. And, and what does Paul do? He takes that and actually... In Romans 14, he applies it to God. Romans 14, verses 10 to 12. But here in Philippians 2, he applies that to Christ. Have you, you seen the way the New Testament does that? So a passage that talks about God can be applied to Christ. Now, you can't do that with anything else. So you, you, you can't take a passage that says, you know, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and I say, well, you know, that's me. Uh, it's not going to work. <laughs> Uh, you won't be asked back and you might be locked up and you deserve it uh, but Jesus does that he, he, he takes passages that refer to, to God in the Old Testament applies them to himself and the New Testament does that and this is one example uh, if, you, if you want another example at, at the end of Hebrews chapter 1 Psalm 102 speaks about God as the everlasting creator and that's just simply applied then to Christ. He is the creator and he is from everlasting to everlasting. He's eternal. And it just does that in so many places. So those, well, like my Muslim friend, who, who can't yet see it. Yeah, Jesus is a prophet. Yes, he's a prophet. You don't say that about prophets. You do say it about the eternal Son of God. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. Those in heaven, the elect angels and the redeemed, uh, those on earth, those that are still alive at his coming, and those under the earth, which I take it he's referring to the rebellious angels and those who despise the God of all grace, they will recognise that they got it wrong badly wrong and I'll confess that this man Jesus whom they rejected and despised and uh, thought he was nothing is actually the Lord of all and Judas will submit and Hitler will submit and Stalin will submit 
and every last person will acknowledge this. Uh, sometimes you get uh, commentators, uh, Gerald Hawthorne says here that Paul's only expressing the hope that intelligent beings will voluntarily choose submission to, to Christ. That's not what he's saying. He's saying they will submit. He's not expressing a hope that they will. They will. There'll be universal submission, but there won't be universal salvation. Christ is Lord and judge, and one day he'll be seen to be so by all the world. People talk about being on the right side of history. You know what they mean? You know what they mean when they talk like that language? Yeah. Same-sex marriage from here to the, to the you know, Sahara Desert, or something, uh, and uh, all the world will be a totally different place. And this is where it's all heading. We're progressive. Right? This is the right side of history. It's not the triumph of the trendies. It's the triumph of Christ, the one who came from glory, emptied himself, died death on the cross, returns to glory. That is, leave thy throne and thy kingly crown when thou camest to earth for me. Christ has come home to glory. Now, just return to the context. You see how doctrine, that's what we believe, and ethics, that's what we do. You see how they're combined here? Because what's the context? That was the first point. We go back to verse 5. This is to promote... A humble heart in us. Sorry, I've lost track of time. This is to provoke a, a humble heart in us. That's what it's, that's what it's meant to lead us. So as we understand who Christ is, that this is the Lord of glory who, who died his dreadful death on the cross and was taken up in glory, has the name which is above every other name, this is the one that we bow before. We will bow before him in the judgment, or we'll bow before him now, here, on earth. Uh, and the right side of history, just finish on this, uh, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'll, I'll tell you a Spurgeon story, a Baptist church. Uh, I referred to his conversion, but you know one of the the worst things that happened to him. He had a lot of trials. But 19th of October, 1856, the Surrey Gardens Music Hall, he was preaching there, and there were thousands. And somebody yelled out, fire. You know the story? And, and there was panic. There was no fire, actually, but there was panic. And seven people were killed. And Spurgeon at first didn't know what was happening. He kept preaching and then finally uh, he found out what had happened and there were seven deaths. And he felt responsible, he felt downcast. That, what is God doing in this? Why? You know, Spurgeon's preaching the gospel and seven people lose their lives. And yeah, uh, Susanna, his wife, for a, while, for a while she thought he might never preach again. He is so downcast. And you know what lifted him up? It was this, that Christ has the name above every other name and this is to the glory of God the Father 
And this will happen, he, he thought about this verse, this will happen whether Spurgeon plays any part in that or not, or whether John Newton plays any part in that, or Calvin or anybody else, or any of us, no matter what we do, this will happen. And that emptied him of himself. So that it's not so, so much the counselling of, oh, yeah, this is not your fault, Charles Spurgeon, you know, and this is just happens and these are the trials of life and you've got to pick yourself up and get on with life. There's, there's truth in that. But no, look, this is going to happen. Christ is going to have the glory. His victory is sure and certain and that just took all the, the, the depression from uh, Spurgeon and you know the rest he, he got back to preaching uh, the unsearchable riches of Christ with a greater appreciation of it so the father and the son they're not competitors the glory of the father is enhanced through uh, the glorification of the son let me finish on this this is this is a warning from Augustine I, I said I would quote Augustine he, he expressed his amazement at the thought that, these are his words, God has humbled himself and still man is proud. This is meant to inform us, but it's also meant to humble our hearts, to break our hearts and, and to make us bow before the one who is the saviour and the Lord. So let's do just that. Let's pray. Father, we pray, wherever we be in our relationship with you, that we might have understanding of who Christ is, uh, that he is not simply a man amongst men, but he is the one who is the Lord of glory, and he is the one who emptied himself that we might be made full. He is the one who uh, was obedient unto death, that we who were disobedient unto death might be brought to life. His victory is sure and certain. Make us, we pray, in bowing the knee to him to share in that victory. Forgive us all our sins and cleanse us in Jesus' name. Amen.